Friday, October 11th, 2019 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, a new speaker, King declares victory, and ghost of impeachment's past. Hi, I'm James Lynch for the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Brett Hayworth for the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Ed Tibbetts for the Quad City Times. Good morning, Ed. Morning, James. Ed Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper State House Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. First up this morning, Speaker Grassley. There will be a new sheriff in the Iowa House come January. Not surprisingly, House Republicans selected Pat Grassley to succeed Linda Upmeyer, who is stepping down as Speaker and, and announced she will not seek re-election in her Clear Lake House District. Grassley, who has chaired the Agriculture Committee and then the Appropriations Committee, will move up to the Speaker's dais. Aaron, um, what should we expect from the new Speaker? He's not going to be the youngest Speaker of the House. I think Ron Corbett holds that distinction. But he's about 30 years younger than the current Speaker. Will that make a difference? Um, I don't know that that will necessarily, um, based on what we've seen uh, Grassley as a, a legislator in the past, uh, I, I don't know that I remember too many times thinking his age um, made a difference in the perspective he was offering. Um, but it will be interesting to see him as as a leader in the chamber. Uh, now, as you noted, he's, he's kind of um, climbed the ladder, so to speak, by chairing some important committees in the House, uh, um, the Ag and the Budget Committees. Um, so he has some experience at that level, but uh, as the uh, kind of head of the spear now, um, setting the agenda in, in the House, um, uh, it, it, this is going to have to bring out a, a, a different um, type of definitely a different skill set that, um, that, that he hasn't had to use before. So it's going to be interesting to see how he um, operates uh, on the job. Um, I, I don't know. You know, it's kind of interesting when when um, Craig Paulson stepped down and Admire had been the majority leader under him, so you kind of expect a, expect a, a, a transition where you would see, you know, a, a similar lawmaking agenda. Um, Pat Grassley wasn't on the leadership team under Speaker Meyer. Um Her majority leader was Chris Hagen also. So it would be interesting to see how similar or how different the uh, agenda is under Pat Grassley. I, I don't know that any of us has a real good sense for that. So that, that's one of those things I'm most curious to see play out in this upcoming session. Todd, um, what should we expect from Grassley in terms of his agenda, as Aaron was kind of talking about? Um, he's been, a, as a probes chairman, he championed a review of tax credits. He uh, always seems to be in favor of tax cuts. Um, would you expect more of that? Well, I, you know, I think with a surplus, traditionally, Republicans like to cut taxes when they have a surplus. Uh, he, he did float a proposal to cap tax credits at one point back in 2017. Although, you know, now his probably his number one job is going to be to hold the majority. And so you look at the groups that they need support from to hold the majority. It's business interests, agricultural interests, 
uh, social conservatives. Uh, and so I think you're going to see an agenda that, that checks some boxes for those groups. And, and I'm not sure that reducing or eliminating business tax credits is going to be the sort of thing that the Republican legislature does in a year when they're going to be asking business interests for, for help maintaining the majority. So I'm not optimistic about that, but I do think that there probably will be some sort of, of, of tax cuts. To the, the, I mean, it's an election year. They're Republicans. That's what they like to do. So I, I think that's what's going to happen. And, 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 and as I said, other items that will uh, appeal to their, their conservative coalition. Yeah. Budget surplus plus election year should equal tax cuts. I mean, in the political calculus, it seems like. Um, you know, and with Grassley coming from rural Iowa, Todd, uh, I assume you expect that he'll uh, accelerate efforts to clean up waterways, which are mostly in rural Iowa. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm not all that optimistic about that, actually. So, uh, but. The governor did sort of hint last week that she might be interested in filling the uh, the uh, Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund created back in 2010. It's sat empty for nearly a decade. There's talk that you know from her staff that she's looking at that as part of a tax reform effort. There's there's been a lot of talk over the years of you know raising the sales tax and using the proceeds from that to to fill the trust fund and also to sort of offset the cost of other tax cuts income, corporate, what have you. So uh, something may happen on that, but it also may be that they rewrite the funding formula so that it pleases the Farm Bureau and agriculture groups, and it might mean that environmental interests aren't nearly as happy with how the money's going to be spent than they might have been. Also outdoor recreation interests that, that pushed for it, uh, for you know expanded opportunities. If all that money goes to where farm groups want it to go, that may may mean less of that. So that's going to be interesting to watch if that comes together. But I think when the dust settles, you're not going to see a new, I don't think you're going to see a much different approach to water quality. It's going to be voluntary, and we're going to have to wait a while for it to actually move the needle. Aaron, uh, Grassley joins uh, or has put together a leadership team that includes Matt Winschittle from Missouri Valley in Western Iowa and Speaker Pro Tem John Wills from Okaboji in Northwest Iowa. Is this leadership team too rural, um, especially as we see suburban areas in Iowa as the areas that are growing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and and it'll be, again, going back to what I had earlier, it's going to be interesting to see how this leadership team operates. You know, when, when we cover things at the state house, um, it's not always the Democrat versus Republican issue. A lot of times the disagreements over legislation are, are urban versus rural legislators, although <laughs> more and more that's increasingly the same thing anyways with Democrats having a hard time winning in rural areas. But 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 it's it's a good point you raised that now it's a leadership team that's comprised entirely of rural legislators. There's there's no one from the cities or or suburbs on on the leadership team. So um, that's a different perspective maybe that they bring to to legislation, and that's going to be interesting to see how that impacts the agenda um, as well. I I think that's absolutely a very interesting and open question, and, and one that we'll be watching in this session. 
Uh, on the other side of the rotunda in the Senate, uh, the GOP leadership is uh, Jack Whitburn and Charles Schneider, uh, who represent the fast-growing suburbs of Ankeny and West Des Moines, respectively. I guess maybe it'll balance out. But, uh, you know, I'll kind of throw this out to Ed and, and Todd, if you think about it, and Brett as well, um, there really are no outstate cities represented in leadership. Quad Cities, Cedar Rapids, Iowa City, Sioux City. Um, do you think that uh, is going to be worrisome to local leaders in those communities that there's nobody in leadership that, um, I guess, lives where they live? Um, just speaking from the Quad Cities, I'd say, yeah, people notice that. Uh, you know, uh, I think that, you know, the legislature's always uh, had a uh, rural tilt to it. Uh, but then when you uh, basically uh, preserve the uh, uh, the leadership functions for essentially central Iowa, um, mm-hmm. other parts of the state notice. We do here. Sure. Sure. Todd or Brett, uh, thoughts? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, for Sioux City, there was a that big chunk of time in, the, I guess, night. 90s and 2000s when Christopher Rance was was in power um, in the House, and then lately Rick Bertrand was in the you know upper I, I don't know I would say like second or third maybe in command with um, in the Senate and sure I mean you can better advocate for your for your local interests and and right now that's that's not happening for Sioux City so it's, that that is always a concern. And Ed, uh, whenever we talk about Pat Grassley, there's a question, speculation, or conspiracy theory that it's all part of a plan for him to follow in the footsteps of his grandfather, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley. Um, should we assume that the Grassley, the younger, will be around just until 2022 when he makes his run for office in Washington? I think that assumes the elder Grassley doesn't run in 22, right? I mean, who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He'll only be 89. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all, of course, if, if the younger Grassley were to run for the seat, if, if Grandpa Grassley doesn't, uh, you know, retires in, in 2022. And talk about instant name recognition. Uh, I mean... Uh, Grassley is a household name in Iowa. He's been in the Senate since 81, Uh, although I'm guessing the Democrats would make that an issue. But, um, yeah, I could certainly see that happening. What would be more interesting to me, actually, is whether, um, you know, if if Pat Grassley were to uh, uh, run for the U.S. Senate, whether that would clear the field in a Republican primary. I'm sure there's lots of Republicans not named Grassley uh, who have been waiting for uh, uh, the elder Grassley to retire so they can run for the office. Yeah, somehow I, I have a feeling that it wouldn't necessarily clear the field that there, like you say, there are other people who have been watching and waiting for uh, the elder Grassley to step down. So, um, yeah, there'll be something to watch as we get closer to 2022. Todd, uh, since the speaker in waiting and his grandfather seem to compete about who can collect the most pop cans, Will 2020 be the year when the five cent deposit on beverage containers gets increased? <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't know about that, but to the extent to which pol- the current state of politics has driven has driven me to drink, I'd advise both of them to stop by my house and load up. 
On empties. <laughs> on empties. Yes, empties. Very empty. <laughs> All right. Moving along here to the ghost of impeachment's past, as if on cue, Bob Woodward of Watergate fame or infamy, depending on your perspective, visited Sioux City the other night. And uh, interestingly enough, he talked about impeachment. Brett uh, Woodward said he sees some parallels between the actions of Richard Nixon and President Donald Trump. Um, tell us more. Yeah, well, and just to briefly set the scene, um, this was at Morningside College, and they have a great lecture series where they have a, a good endowment where they get very national caliber type speakers every year. We had Ken Burns last year, um, Chuck Todd in recent years, and and it's I was very excited. I'd, I'd never met uh, Woodward in person, and and um, so what I'm about to say comes from an interview of him, and then also he spoke, um, you know, to. To people in that lecture that night, but yeah, absolutely. Of course, when you know we we came with questions about you know the impeachment being a prime topic now on parallels, and and of course the the parallel would be you know one is that both Trump and Nixon have been subject to you know at least the start of impeachment proceedings, and um, the other similarities um, would be that he mentioned would be like how they both have demonized the the media, um, and then they both on really hard and pushed hard against, you know, their legislative critics. And, and, um, I was, it occurred to me later that I wonder if, if Nixon were still alive, if he would be kicking himself for, uh, not, not inventing the phrase fake news that, that, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that Trump has done, but, and, and yeah, it's probably not surprising, but, um, he, uh, Woodward brought up that for war, wars against various entities and when he talked about first was was the war on the media and and um war against the press and and um again that's not surprising coming from his background and he shared a bunch of stories that I had I'd heard but had had long forgotten I guess but like there was there was a plan to um at least they looked into to, there was a columnist named Jack Anderson that, that they looked into at, at some point of perhaps trying to rub him out or, or kill him, you know, to and you know, things like that, and and um, it's very interesting to to hear, I guess, in today's climate, to hear him recount all those things that that Nixon did, um, uh, pushing back against the press and against all of, you know his political enemies, so to speak. Nixon uh, almost seems like a, a piker uh, compared to Trump in terms of attacking the media, the fake news, uh, uh, the way he carries on, and. Uh, and Todd, for for Nixon, demonizing the media um, didn't work out well in the end. Uh, will Trump be more successful in his attacks on, on the media? Yeah, you know, just think how much how much better we'd feel if if President Trump, you know, called us nattering nabobs of negativism, you know, like Sparrow Agnew <laughs> did. That's that's pretty pretty tame by modern standards. Uh, yeah, Nixon was Nixon was very critical of the media, obviously, and uh, you know it's a, but it's a different media landscape now. I mean, when he attacked the media, but Americans still, you know, had more limited sources of media. I mean, they still looked to the network news and and looked to their newspapers for information. So no matter how much he attacked them, that's still where they got the story about Watergate. Now we live in an era where if you if you don't like the so-called mainstream media, you've got Fox News and, and you know umpteen other ideologically more conservative sources that will 
that will aid and comfort you in, in defending the president. So it's a different landscape. And, uh, and, and, you know, and it's a landscape where a lot of media organizations are trying to stay profitable and they're under pressure to not lose subscribers and viewers. And so it's a, it's a much more volatile situation. And so these attacks are, are much more, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think, I think Trump has, has advantages in this, in this situation that Nixon never had. Yeah, if if Fox News had existed in in 1974, Nixon might have been able to serve out his second term. Oh, I, I don't I don't have a lot of doubt that if if Watergate played out the way it did then, now as it did then, I don't I don't know that he would have had to resign. You would have had an entire media complex saying that this was all made up and nothing happened. And I mean, it's I mean, this is what this is where we are now. Yeah. Ed, uh, while this is playing out, uh, Democrats are trying very hard to put Senator Joni Ernst and other Republicans who are up for election in 2020 on the spot on the impeachment issue and and, and wondering how long can Ernst say she doesn't know if Trump uh, asked the president of Ukraine for a quid pro quo or that she doesn't know if it was an impeachable offense. Um, I guess how long until self-preservation outweighs loyalty to the president? Well, we, we saw this week she won't even say whether she believes it was um, that it is wrong for a uh, president to ask a foreign country to investigate a domestic political rival. Um, I think we've seen over the years that Senator Ernst has become quite adept at dodging questions, ignoring them in many cases, frankly. Uh, but she's still going to get them um, from the media and the public, and the trick will be to uh, look like she's not you know, completely in the tank for the president, who's in a risky position, and yet still send a signal to... Um, uh, to her base, their base, that she's still supportive. Um, you know, as for uh, how long until self-preservation outweighs loyalty to the president, um, in many ways, self-preservation may mean remaining loyal to the president. Um, you know, so uh, it, I think it all depends on just how uh, uh, how stable the president's position is in Iowa. As the polls show that uh, an increasing number of people uh, support, at least in uh, impeachment inquiry, uh, that may become more difficult and uh, <laughs> to to hang on to that, I guess. But uh, it, it is, yeah, it is. Nice. But yeah, it is. But you know, uh, I, I think part of the, the first job of getting reelected is to make sure that you have a solid base. There will always be a solid mm -hmm. base uh, for the president of the state. So it's uh, it's tricky terrain for the senator. Indeed. On the other hand, there's good news for Senator, or I mean, excuse me, Representative Steve King. Uh, according to his uh, internal poll, uh, he's likely to defeat the four challengers he faces in the 2020 GOP primary in Iowa's fourth district. Um, Brad, uh, excuse me, man, I'm having a hard time with names today. Brett, I'll, I'll answer anyway. Brett, <laughs> Brett, Brad, Bob. But uh, what does King's internal poll tell us, if anything? Yeah. Um, so this came out just a few days ago, and it was a poll of 400 um, people who are likely to to vote in, in uh, the primary next June. And and um, according to King's team, um, this internal poll shows that um, if, if you cobble together both, like I guess, like likely and leaning support, that he has 59% of, of the people in this poll. And this poll was just last week. And his the, the the guy who leads in the race with fundraising 
which we'll talk about next week with more fundraising reports coming out, is, is Randy Feenstra, and, and that he was far behind at 15%, and then the other people in the field were down even lower in, in single digits, like Jeremy Taylor from Sioux City. And so that would be, um, again, like the leaning and likely support, 59%. Um, and there was another question on approving of his, um, basically his job performance. Approved, disapproved, and 72% approved um, in that poll, and 18% disapproved. And um, you know, there's various um, pushbacks against against that from them. I got, I got basically uh, everybody but Steve Reeder to to respond to that poll, and and one of the one of the responses would be Brett Richards. He's um, one of the other candidates, and he he criticized the poll, or at least the re- the results. Uh, the results being so supposedly positive for King because he said it basically only gets that name ID and that 59% isn't isn't such a great job for, for Steve King after, I guess, 17, 18 years in the house. Mm-hmm. Is it unusual for King to be talking about uh-huh. his internal polls, um, especially yeah. in primary? Yeah, season? it is. Yeah, I mean, it is okay. rare. The only other time I could think of was um, I mean, not for primary, but would have been in the, in the run-up to the general election in 2018, uh, about a year ago this time. And um, he was competing against J.D. Shulton, the, the Democrat from Sioux City, and, and that, that race was seen as tightening. And it, I think it was about this time. It was like, I want to say October, early mid-October, King put out a, a release, a, a poll. And this was after a public poll had shown the race tightening. And King said, well, no, my, my internal poll shows me, I, I want to say it was like 20 to 22 percent up. And then, you know, like, this is not going to be a, a contest. And I, I do also recall that about that same time that J.D. Shulton said, well, my internal poll shows me down about only, I'm only 6 percent behind. And then ultimately the vote turned out to be that well, King only won by 3 percent. So I, a lot of people, um, I remember at the time people were somewhat um, kind of, um, not sure, sure of the validity of that internal poll of, of showing King up twenty percent, but yes, it is rare, and that is not the type of thing he normally throws out into a race. A spokesman for the the Feaster campaign called King desperate for resorting to quote liberal tactic of shopping fake polls to the news media, um, just like they've done repeatedly in an effort to discredit President Trump. Um, Todd, as Brett mentioned, there was 72% approval rating for Congressman King. Um, if Congressman King remains that popular after all he's been through in the past year, who should be more worried, uh, Randy Feenstra or Jay Shulton? Well, I, I think first I'd say that shopping around fake polls is a proud bipartisan tradition, I thought, but but that's <laughs> trying to get people to believe your internal polls is sort of, you know, that's... That's a, that's that's a that's a great that's a great tradition. Uh, yeah, you know, seventy-two percent seems high. I, I I think part of this, you know, you know, they have a poll, and it's part of it is spin, and it's not surprising. They, you know, campaigns don't generally reduce, re, you know, release internal polls where they're behind. So we don't know what other polls they've done, and what we did, we frankly don't know a lot about the, the questions, the numbers, the methodology, all that stuff. So it's always a grain of salt. But uh, you know, I. I I still think with the with a multi candidate field and his base of support, he's probably favored to win the primary. Probably still favored, and if he went, you know, the winner of the primary is going to be favored to win the the general. So I don't think that's changed. I don't I don't think any of his opponents should be more concerned after this. They've got a lot of work to do to beat an incumbent, and and I think that remains no matter what his his poll says. All right. 
Well, that's it for this edition of On Auto Politics. I hope it's been worth your time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher and fan mail may be sent to onisopolitics at gmail.com. And you can find us every week on the homepages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Nation City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Billy Lee Janey will take us out today. If you know a band or talented island musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to On Isle Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Ed, Aaron, Brett, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. <laughs>